From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. On Super Tuesday, we hear from a Colorado voter with a knack for picking candidates who drop outs, why he's not crying over spilt milk. Then the Pentagon's about to choose where to permanently locate U.S. Space Command. Governor Jared Polis says beyond small talk, it's the only thing he raised with President Trump in Colorado Springs. It's not a partisan thing. It's not even a regional thing. Denver and Grand Junction are on board with Colorado Springs site for Space Command. So, I mean, this is just a statewide initiative to help make our state the center for space research and jobs. Later, downtown in the Springs, mind-blowing juxtapositions. Having a coal-fired power plant right in the middle of your downtown when you're trying to be Olympic Olympic City, City, USA. USA. Plus, the impact of coronavirus on things we buy every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, reporting from Colorado Springs this week, and it's Super Tuesday, when more than a dozen states, including Colorado, cast presidential primary ballots. On the Republican side, the president is a shoe-in. On the Democratic side, the picture is way more complicated. Many names are on the ballot of people no longer in the race. Among them, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who dropped out Monday, and Pete Buttigieg, who left the race Sunday. Reasons this may be more like stupor Tuesday for voter Timothy Coonan of Denver. Tim, you there? Yes, I am. Uh, You sent your ballot early. Yes, I did. I wonder how early. I dropped it off sometime last week. Well, congratulations on not being a procrastinator. But in this case, I understand your top candidates were Klobuchar and Buttigieg. Do I have that right? (laughs) Yes, it is. Also Tulsi Gabbard. But unfortunately, Tulsi Gabbard wasn't really getting a lot of delegates. So it looked like that wouldn't have been a great vote. Okay. You seem to have a knack, though, for picking people who drop out of the race before (laughs) Super Tuesday. Who did you wind up voting for? Do you mind if I ask? Yeah, absolutely. I ended up voting for Pete Buttigieg. Uh, He had the most delegates. And really what I'm going for is a moderate candidate. You mean that he had the most delegates of the people you liked? Exactly. Do you feel like you wasted your vote? Or do you feel like some, I'm hearing in Democratic circles, who stand by a vote, even if it's for someone who dropped out simply because they like him or her? You know, it's kind of funny about that. I kind of feel like I typically do what most people would say is waste their vote anyway. Since in the majority of elections, I end up voting for third-party candidates, it's par for the course. I see. So this is not a new feeling for you? No, unfortunately, it's not. Usually, I end up voting for people that have absolutely no chance, and that's something I've just kind of come to expect. Did you think for a moment, as you put your ballot in the box early, I might regret this? No. No, I actually was really shocked when I heard that Judge backed out. There's a lot of candidates that are going for the Democratic primary that I would have expected to drop sooner. But Buttigieg has some early victories. And for that reason, I really thought that he was going to go all the way until, you know, until the last state. We've heard the Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, talking about the potential for ranked choice or alternative voting schemes in the future. Is that something that would appeal to you, given what happened to you this cycle? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the absolute worst things that we have is that we could have a third-party candidate who everyone really loves, but because they're considered to be a wasted vote, they don't have a chance and they never get a chance. 
So it would be an amazing thing if people could actually vote for who they want. Because uh, right now, you know, if you're voting for the lesser of two evils, then that means you're voting for evil. And I would much rather vote for not evil. Well, Tim, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Tim Coonan of Denver, who interacted with us on Twitter Monday as the Democratic presidential sands continued to shift, then we brought him on the show. Now, as far as the delegates that are up for grabs in Colorado... Klobuchar can't rack any up. She has officially withdrawn from the state, so her votes will not be counted. Buttigieg could still land some. He has only suspended his campaign, but he'd have to earn at least 15% of the vote in a given congressional district. It's worth noting delegates are not bound to their candidate, so they could shake things up at the national convention in July in Milwaukee. As for tonight, polls close at 7 p.m., at which time you can expect special coverage from NPR and CPR News. Our new listeners this week across southern Colorado on KRCC may not know that we've had a standing interview with the governor dating back to 2007 and the Bill Ritter administration. These regular conversations at the state capitol continue with Democratic Governor Jared Polis. And this time we'll focus on some issues of statewide importance like climate and paid family leave and a few topics that are especially relevant to southern Colorado, like the closure of a private prison and the future of U.S. Space Command. So let's get started. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure. I'd like to talk about paid family leave. Uh, Last year's plan would have created a government-run program. You opposed that, saying the state should require leave and let private businesses run it. This year's proposal was written just that way. But now two of the four sponsors have dropped off, saying it won't provide enough coverage. You backed this year's proposal. Are you going to the mat to try to save it? You know, this is a real exciting opportunity for Colorado. Uh, We have unpaid leave federally, right, under the Family and Medical Leave Act that Colorado's former representative Pat Schroeder was one of the champions of. But it only applies to companies that are 50 people and up. And then secondly, it's unpaid. So a lot of people just can't afford to take it. I mean, if you're living, you know, one paycheck away from making your rent or mortgage, it's not a real choice. So the question is, how do we grow who can benefit from family leave, and how do we ensure that it's paid? So we're very excited to work with legislative leaders to really find a solution that can pass in Colorado, that can expand who's eligible for leave, and then make it paid. Do you think you will help make that happen this session? Uh, Absolutely. We're fully engaged and fully supportive, however we can help. Do I hear you saying, yes, I'm going to the mat for this. I'm spending political capital to make it happen. I'm very supportive of paid family leave. I think it's high time that Colorado act in the absence of federal leadership. And I do hope someday as a country we move forward uh, and there are bipartisan efforts in uh, the United States Senate. I don't think they'll pass, you know, this year, but I think that will be the future, whether it's five or 10 years. But certainly Colorado should lead. We should establish paid family and medical leave, and that's a benefit that Colorado employees can feel good about. And I think it's one that businesses can feel good about, too, because it's good for morale at the end of the day. Currently, our 31,000 state workers don't have any paid family leave. Looking at our priorities as an employer for the state, with one in five of our positions being vacant, our benefits lagging behind the private sector, we're fighting hard to make sure that our state employees get paid family and medical leave, and we'd love many more employees in the private sector to have it as well. To climate change, last year you signed a set of ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goals. Uh, But recently, more than 50 environmental groups 
co-signed a letter saying that your administration is way behind in meeting those goals. Are you losing the faith of Colorado's environmental community? Well, I mean, that's certainly the job of environmental advocates to, no matter how aggressive our climate agenda is, uh, their job is to uh, urge us to go further and faster. Uh, I'm really proud that after one year in office, our administration's efforts will result in an 18% reduction of emissions. We're working on many other uh, additional steps along the the timelines of the bill with the Oil and Gas Commission, uh, with electric vehicle work. We know that we can't really solve this problem by adopting one rule. It's not a simple rule or action or edict, it really takes place across a lot of venues, the Air Commission, the Public Utilities Commission, different state agencies, the legislature, which is considering several bills that will help us reach those goals, local communities. We created a program where we partner with local communities to help fund uh, renewable energy. And there's a lot more work to do. And I really look forward to continuing to work with legislators and others to help make sure that Colorado can really lead on improving our air quality and reducing carbon emissions. These environmental groups say even with high ambition assumptions and a number of future strategies like retiring every coal plant in Colorado and replacing it with renewables, that there would still be a gap in Colorado's goal. And that's what's amazing is we're a lot further along in that. I mean, so if you look at the renewable energy side and, you know, my goal that I ran on and that we are focused on is 100% renewable energy by 2040. When I first declared, you know, my candidacy in Pueblo, uh, what, you know, two and a half years ago, people thought that was a pie in the sky dream. They said, oh, Jared, you know, I don't think you can get to 100% by 2040. We are getting there. Um, Excel is going to be 80% reduction in emissions by 2030. And the hardest one was Tri-State because they're not directly under the Public Utilities Commission. And now with their new announcement and new leadership, they're going to be at 90% reduction in emissions by 2030. So in that 10-year period, 2030 to 2040, we just have that final 10 to 20%. I'm very confident that working together, we can get there. In a recent op-ed in the Pueblo Chieftain, you ruled out regulations like a cap-and-trade system. This is what states like California are doing now. They set a cap on overall emissions and then let companies buy and sell the permission to pollute. Why take an option like that off the table when the discussion, you know, is still in its infancy? Well, we don't need that kind of policy to succeed in reaching our renewable energy goals. We're focused on 100% renewable energy for the grid, electrification, beneficial electrification of buildings, electric vehicles, vehicle efficiency. Uh, We as a state are not always big enough to do solutions that might work federally or even in a state like California. Uh, We need to lead by innovation. And that means saving people money on their electricity bills through low-cost renewable energy. We got to uh, break ground on the largest behind-the-meter solar project in the entire country in Pueblo, Colorado at Everest Rocky Mountain Steel to keep those energy-intensive steel jobs in Pueblo and lead to cleaner air. Uh, Leading the way on electric vehicles, we adopted electric vehicle standards that will result in many more models being available to Colorado consumers as soon as next year, uh, as well as building out charging infrastructure across the state. Is your fear that cap-and-trade would hurt business unnecessarily? Well, it's a policy that doesn't get into the nuances of what actually needs to be done uh, in each of the areas to achieve these goals. So when you look at what is causing our air quality problems, firstly, in, in the Denver metro area in particular, causing health issues, and then, of course, also contributing to global warming, it's the energy grid, which we talked about, the goal of achieving 100% by 2040. Second, automobiles and the fleet. 
third, oil and gas, and buildings. And so we're making progress in all of those areas. They each have their own nuanced discussion. I mean, vehicles and electric vehicles, we're going as fast as we can, and that's a big one. But again, we as a state alone can't determine what the big automobile manufacturers are making and selling. We can make them available for sale here. We can establish standards, but we are not the market that drives what you know, the automobile producers produce. President Trump was in Colorado Springs, as you know, February 20th for a rally. And you met with him, talked about locating the U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs permanently. I wonder if you talked with him about anything else or if it was just that. Uh, well, my my goal is really talking about how Colorado is the center of the space economy uh, with the strong aerospace industry, with our strong defense infrastructure, is the best possible place for Space Command, which we previously hosted as well. And we are right on the cusp of that decision. That's over 4,000 jobs for Colorado directly, but it's also all of the ancillary jobs making our state a continued leader in space research uh, and defense. And so it was a very good conversation uh, with the president. He shared with me his uh, fondness for Colorado. Uh, he enjoyed speaking at the Air Force Academy graduation, and he reiterated that we are very strongly in contention for being the site for Space Command. And that was, that was it? Of the conversation? Well, we talked for about 10, 15 minutes uh, and had Did a good conversation. Uh, that was the only ask that we had, um, you know, you know, small talk for a little while. And Jared Kushner joined us in the meeting as well. And I talked to Jared a little bit afterwards. And he said that he knows the president appreciates, you know, being asked in, for things. And it's as a sign of respect. So anything we can do, Democrats, Republicans, and it's not a partisan thing. It's not even a regional thing. Denver and Grand Junction are on board with Colorado Springs site for Space Command. So, I mean, this is just a statewide initiative to help make make our state the center for space research and jobs. We're a leader, and we can go from being a leader to being the leader in the growing space economy, and Space Command is an important part of that, and Colorado is the best place for it. Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of the president. In a few days, a private prison is scheduled to close in Colorado Springs, the Cheyenne Mountain Reentry Center. Uh, it's housed more than 600 medium security inmates. You want to close all the state's private prisons. Um, you announced last year that you would end the contract with Cheyenne Mountain's owners this June. They sped that up. What's happening, first off, with those inmates? So we uh, are able to accommodate the inmates. Uh, the bill that reopened Centennial South passed, you know, for a very short period of time. We're down to a low number of beds, just a few dozen beds. But we Let me just say Centennial South is in Canyon City. Uh, yes, that's our public prison. Sorry, that's already built. It's just a matter of opening it. And that will house some of the prisoners that have been relocated. But we were able to, within our system, handle uh, the capacity without having any overcrowding. What is your larger idea behind closing private prisons? Because I, I note that, you know, two of the private prisons are in Bent and Crowley counties in southern Colorado. Local officials and lawmakers from those areas are worried about the job losses. Yeah, I don't want to be, so first of all, there's no specific plans around those prisons. But I want to sort of talk about what the problem is with the for-profit prisons. One is it creates a profit incentive for recidivism, which is the opposite of what you want. You don't want anybody making money off of people having to re-enter the criminal justice system because they've offended. If anything, you want to reward successful um, re-entry programs that re reduce recidivism. The other operational risk is what happened at uh, Cheyenne Mountain, where basically you, if you rely on a contractor like that and they just pull out, all of a sudden you're left with a crisis to make sure you can accommodate those prisoners. We were able to accommodate that, but if any of the other private providers just said, hey, we're, we're closing down in 60 days, tough luck, we would have a very difficult time opening enough space on the public side to accommodate that. 
In a very controversial case last summer, Colorado Springs police were investigating a robbery and stopped a man named Devon Bailey. When he ran from them, he ignored their commands to put his hands up, and they shot him in the back and killed him. Uh, The shooting provoked a lot of outrage in the community. You called for an independent investigation at the time. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers was very critical of that statement, calling it politically motivated. And instead, uh, they followed normal procedure. Do you think independent investigations would be better as a matter of course statewide. There are some in the Springs calling for that. There's always more confidence if the investigation is carried out by a separate agency than the one that directly works with or is the one being accused, right? So if it had been handed off to a neighboring DA to investigate, there'd be a lot more public confidence in the outcome. Doesn't mean the the outcome would be different, right? But what it means is there'd be more public buy-in. We need to identify solutions that don't compromise public safety and really ensure that there is trust in law enforcement. And of course, we're open to working with lawmakers and anyone interested in really engaging this conversation about how we can support trust in law enforcement and the integrity of the law enforcement process by having a process in place that inspires confidence. Would that be a statewide independent voice, you know, something like the independent monitor that works in Denver, It, for it doesn't instance. have to be, as I said, a neighboring jurisdiction. It could be guidelines under which there's a different jurisdiction that takes charge. It could be statewide. There's there's many different models, that, and some states have implemented them. As you said, there's some cities that have taken steps as well. There's no one model that we uh, say is best, but in general, we think it's better to have the guidelines around this before the heat of the moment and the emotions really skews everybody's judgment on all sides. So it sounds like you're open if lawmakers bring you such a proposal. We're happy to engage with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, with prosecutors, with police, on the best way to do this that inspires confidence in our system. Finally, last fall, you created Colorado's 42nd state park, Fisher's Peak in southern Colorado near Trinidad. Uh, What particularly drew you to that area, made you want to make it a state park? Well, Fisher's Peak is absolutely iconic. Um, Fisher's Peak is not only an iconic part of Trinidad, but it also promises to be a significant tourist attraction for tourists from New Mexico, from Texas, from other parts of Colorado. You're right there on the New Mexico line. It actually, and what's wonderful from a conservation perspective is it on the New Mexico side of the border, there's a New Mexico State Park and other contiguous protected territory. So even though the Fisher's Peak State Park itself would be about 19,000 acres, there's over 50,000 contiguous acres of protected habitat for species that include the endangered uh, New Mexican jumping mouse and a number of others. Governor, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Governor Jared Polis in our regular conversation at the state capitol. You know who else we'd like to talk to? You. If you're in the Pikes Peak region and you're free Friday afternoon and evening, come say hello. The Colorado Matters team, along with voices you may know from KRCC, are holding a meet and greet. It's a chance for you to tell us what sorts of coverage you crave. You're also welcome if you have no story ideas at all, but just want to hang with some nice dorky people. We'll be at Colorado Craft, 15 South Tejon Street in Colorado Springs, break a little bread, sip a little something, and relax after a busy news week. I hope to see you there Friday from 4 to 7 at Colorado Craft in the Springs. Until then, follow our trip this week on Twitter at Colorado Matters at CPR Warner. Okay, we'll be right back with why downtown Colorado Springs is full of contradictions and full of possibility. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Public radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News. KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio. With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms. And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC. See the details at CPR.org. From Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm standing in downtown Colorado Springs at a spot of some contrast. On one side, a sparkling new ultra-modern building, and on another side, dilapidated, abandoned warehouses with rotting wood. Dan Boyce is CPR's Southern Colorado reporter. Dan, where are we? We're at the site of the new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. It is almost ready to open. We've got just a couple months. It's set to open sometime in May ahead of the Tokyo Olympics. That's if the Olympics go forward, given coronavirus fears. I understand they put the last of these diamond-shaped scales on the building just last month. Just very recently. And as you can see, this is sort of this twisting metal box and if you're driving through Colorado Springs on the interstate you can't miss it it is really is a striking structure now on the other side as i said these defunct dilapidated warehouses this i imagine is a project that's supposed to lift up the kind of central business district we're not very far from the core of downtown but for a long time this specific couple of blocks where we're standing has been dominated by it, exactly like you said, just these kind of rundown, dilapidated warehouses. And so, you know, what better way to help kind of revitalize a part of your downtown than to drop a world destination museum right in the middle of it? And so that's part of the overall goal is through doing that, you're going to just spur development of, who knows, eateries, tourist shops all throughout this part of downtown. What do you make of these claims, Dan, that this is going to be a global magnet and that this museum is anchoring a revitalization? Here's why I ask with some skepticism. A producer of ours lived in Colorado Springs quite a long time ago and remembers similar conversations going on. Downtown is on the verge of a renaissance. I mean, your crystal ball is as good as mine, man. But we can see that they are actively taking down these old warehouses. They are clearing the way for this new development. And if you speak with the folks who've lived in Colorado Springs a long time, they'll say that in the last five years, you really have seen this resurgence. I mean, my God in heaven, Ryan, we even have a Denver biscuit company in downtown Colorado (laughs) Springs. Now, who would have thought that that was even possible? Although I wonder if there are folks who think the Denver brand is not necessarily (laughs) something they want to see slapped on the Springs. (laughs) It's certainly an argument to be made. Okay, this museum, the Olympic Museum, workers on a Saturday buzzing around putting on the finishing touches. This is actually one site in a bigger network of projects. Yeah, so this goes back to 2013, and the Springs applied for this huge state economic development grant to construct five venues with the explicit goal of driving tourism to the region. A couple that are in the northern part of the city, 
building a new visitor center at the Air Force Academy, a new sports medicine facility at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And then we have three sites here in the downtown core. A, a few blocks north of us, construction is going on for a new ice hockey rink at Colorado College for their well-renowned uh, hockey team. And then down where we're going to finish our tour here today, a new stadium for the local minor league soccer team. But there is no question that of all of those projects in what was called the City for Champions effort, that the Olympic Museum is absolutely the crown jewel of that effort. On the way here, we passed the site of a new hotel, new apartment buildings. So there is some evidence that this is drawing development around it. Right. And for folks who live in Denver, that kind of site is not unusual. But for downtown Colorado Springs, it's really only been in the last five years or so that you have seen this kind of upscale development to sort of cater to folks who are interested in downtown urban lifestyles in a way that the city just hasn't seen before. And at the same time, there's been a lot of growth out in the suburbs as well. This is a city that covers a lot of land. Yeah, one of the things that surprises folks often is that the land area of Colorado Springs is literally double the land area of the city of Denver. It's 200 square miles of city here. It wasn't hemmed in by suburbs in the way that Denver was, so the city just could expand. And so rather than needing to build up over the years like Denver did, Colorado Springs for a long time has just been able to build out and sprawl. Has this redevelopment led to any tensions, Dan? Maybe one of the more prominent ones in the last couple of years was the city's painting of bike lanes throughout much of the downtown. And that created a really remarkable uproar. The folks just up in arms around the taking of specific lanes on some of these streets to put bike lanes in place. And, you know, to be fair, I'm downtown every day and I just don't see a whole lot of bike traffic. So part of that, I think, is understandable for the folks around here. More recently, uh, in order to pay for a lot of the development the city is looking to do downtown, the city has raised the price of parking meters, and once again, people are not having it. Even charging on Sundays now, Ryan, can you imagine? I heard this. Where are we off to next, Dan Boyce? I wanted to take us to a place where we could overlook America the Beautiful Park, which is right across the train tracks from the Olympic Museum, a a place that showcases another really stark dichotomy here in downtown Colorado Springs. We walk past crews tearing down a warehouse, piles of metal and insulation, and Dan takes me onto a bridge. Below us, railroad tracks. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine railroad tracks across right here. What is the contrast you wanted to show folks? A a number of years ago, the city established this really quite beautiful park It's called America the Beautiful Park, and it was intended as this place where the people of Colorado Springs could come and, you know, have a picnic or whatever in just perfect view of Pikes Peak. But at the same time, this is where a lot of the city's homeless population ends up. And like many cities, Colorado Springs is certainly not immune to a growing homeless population going right along with growing economic development. Housing, like many places in Colorado, is getting more expensive here. That's true if you buy or you rent. 
How has the city been dealing with the homeless population? They've been trying to tackle it. The police department here has a new core of dedicated officers as part of what they call their homeless outreach team who do nothing but interact with and help out the homeless community. As well, the local Springs Rescue Mission has been enacting several new programs to try to get folks into temporary housing, to try to transition them into work through volunteer projects to, say, clean up local streets. So there is a lot of work being put toward trying to solve this problem, but it still remains that there are more than 1,500 people living without a roof over their head in the city of Colorado Springs, and a lot of them right near this park and the nearby Fountain Creek trail system that we can see right from here. There's an irony to the idea that America the Beautiful Park is also a symbol of some of the ugliness of its economic disparities. Even in January, there was actually a stabbing spree where a man went through this very park and stabbed a number of homeless individuals trying to spend the night there. But Ryan, we have got one more stop on our tour, and it's just about a half block away from us now. Dan leads me to the starkest contrast yet. On one side of the street, a stadium under construction for the switchback soccer team. On the other side, a coal-fired power plant. It's the uh, Martin Drake coal-fired power plant. And that is gradually on its way out. Sure, and... Honestly, for a long time and for generations even, the power plant was actually a sign of pride and prosperity for Colorado Springs. I mean, the city of Colorado Springs owns its own method for providing, you know, low-cost, reliable, baseload power to its citizens. That is a rare thing. But yeah, having a coal-fired power plant right in the middle of your downtown when you're trying to be Olympic Olympic City, City, USA... You know, a city that prides itself on health, fitness, clean living, and it's presenting its new flagship Olympic museum and a sports stadium right alongside a working coal plant. But yeah, there's pretty much wide consensus among the city council that this power plant is not going to last forever. But amongst the different members, they have very different ideas of what that timeline looks like. Some members of city council want this thing shut down yesterday or within the next couple of years. But others say that it makes a lot more sense to make it more like 10 years or 15 years. Because you can't just turn off a power plant like this. You have to have all of the other power resources built out in other parts of town for this municipal utility to feel that it can shut down its kind of like golden goose power plant where it's been getting its cheap power for all these years. Well, Dan, thanks for this tour of a transforming downtown Colorado Springs. You're welcome, Ryan. Dan Boyce is CPR's Southern Colorado reporter. Concerns about coronavirus are health-related, of course, but economic as well. The markets have been erratic. The Fed is cutting interest rates in hopes of settling things. Meanwhile, some Colorado companies anticipate a hit to their bottom line because of COVID-19. For example, Aero Electronics, a Fortune 500 company in Centennial, says it's already facing disruptions. It gets parts from China. Our next guest says this virus exposes the vulnerability of today's global supply chain. 
Jack Buffington is an assistant professor at DU's Daniels School of Business. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. This term, supply chain, it's how we move parts and products around. And you said long before this that the system had to be more resilient. In layman's terms, what's the problem? Um, Well, I love this question because I tell my students all the time that most people don't understand supply chain. And the reason why they don't understand supply chain is because you don't have to worry about it. Uh, When you show up to the supermarket, items are on the shelf. When you click your mouse on Amazon, the package arrives the next day. But our supply chains are global. Up to 80% of all of our goods come from other countries and mostly coming from ocean ports. So the challenge we face today with the coronavirus is that I was talking to one of the, the executives of the large port on the East Coast, and he mentioned that about a third of his goods come from China. His imports come from China. And about China right now is about 20% production. So it's a significant impact to his imports. And then you think about the fact that it takes 30 days to get from China to the United States. So we're just beginning to see what's happening with the coronavirus with its impact to our economy. So speaking generally, what have been the biggest disruptions so far, given China's role really as a factory to the world? You're starting to see other countries' uh, manufacturing facilities, mainly in automotive, being impacted because 50% of China's automotive capacity is in the Wuhan province. You're seeing electronics being impacted. You're starting to see some pharmaceuticals being impacted. But the way the world supply chain works, people think of manufacturing as finished products. They have to understand a lot of its are components. So this proliferates across the entire world supply chain. So let's talk a little bit about Colorado. We mentioned aeroelectronics. They work with, it seems like, every industry, aerospace, security, lighting, data centers. Aero says it's experienced disruptions and some delays because of coronavirus. Other local companies are also facing a disruption from China. Talk about the ripple effect these kinds of disruptions can have. Yeah, if you do the math on, you know, I talked about the port on the East Coast, but most of the Asian imports come from the West Coast, into the West Coast. 15 to 20 percent impact on imports, right? So these imports come to Colorado in the form of medical supplies, um, electronics. Um, You're starting to see forecasts down for smartphones and iPhones down at 20 percent. Certain supplies when it comes to pharmaceuticals, because a large percent of the um, elements that are made in pharmaceuticals are made in China. So these are bigger concerns as well. So I think you're going to see the ripple effect, not just for imports, but also for exports, right? Um, Products that are made in Colorado and shipped overseas, because as these containers flow around, if the containers are stuck in Wuhan province and they're not flowing, then there's potentially an impact at the ports of sending our products overseas. There's also the issue of a Colorado-based company like Crocs, which sells its products in stores in China, and those stores have apparently been operating at shorter hours or been closed altogether, and that has to have an impact too. Right, and I think this is the main concern I have here, Andrea, is the outdated nature of our supply chain system that doesn't have resiliency to handle any sort of natural event or man-made event on the negative side. And I've been banging on about this for about 12 years now, about not just for the negative side, but also for the positive side, for innovation. 
you know, growing our economy based upon having a more resilient supply chain. And people are starting to see when things like this happen, the impact that it has. And I want to talk in a minute about how we could fix the supply chain. But one of the things I understand is that the products we depend on from China have become increasingly advanced. So that makes our dependence even more of an issue. So in 2002 and 2003, when the SARS virus hit China, the Chinese economy was pretty small. It was $1.5 trillion versus $15 trillion today. So not a huge effect on right. the supply chain. Right. You know, textiles and toys. Right now, they've become more into advanced manufacturing, into um, sophisticated semiconductors. So you mentioned aeroelectronics. So that impact. Pharmaceuticals. So the impact on the on the economy is much more advanced, both in scale and in complexity. You mentioned pharmaceuticals. What about medical devices? I understand some are manufactured in Colorado. Yeah, I, you have three common uh, categories for that. One is pharmaceuticals. The other one is medical devices. You know, Medtronics is based in Colorado, so these sophisticated electronic devices. And then the third one are um, hospital supplies. Before the coronavirus, there was a recall on hospital gowns. There was 9 million hospital gowns that were recalled that were made in a province in China. So you can see critical industries and critical services that we have in Colorado are very much impacted by this concentrated Chinese supply chain. Denver International Airport is a huge economic engine, not just for people, but for cargo. What about the impact of the coronavirus on an airport like DIA? Yeah, so DIA has 35,000 employees that are across the airport. So it's a huge employer in Colorado. Um, You're starting to see the impact worldwide. Frankfurt Airport, there are some of the suppliers that are starting to freeze hiring. Um, I think British Air as well. Um, So you're starting to see this happening. And I think there's a rational reason for this related to the supply chain because there's an element of the global supply chain that happens through air freight. But then you're also going to see impact of business travelers not going overseas. You're going to start to see people concerned about being on an airplane. There's a a statistic from the International Air Transportation Association where they estimated the impact um, on air freight, uh, passenger and air freight, to be about $30 billion, which is about half the impact of the whole SARS virus back in 2003. So let's get to the crux of this issue. You've talked about the problems with the current supply chain. How would you change it to make it less vulnerable to disruptions like the coronavirus? So it's not that people don't understand the problem. It's just that the economy and the stock market and everybody's been doing very good. You know, companies are growing short-term profitabilities up, stock markets up. So there's really no reason to invest in a change in a supply chain, right? At least short-term view of things. Um, however, if you look at where the supply chain is going in the future, it needs to become smaller, it needs to become more agile, it needs to become more innovative. And it's difficult for that to happen when you have a 30-day shipping time from China to the United States, and then the manufacturing and the order lead time can be up to six months. So our supply chains need to be a lot more nimble, not just for catastrophes like this or pandemics, but for innovation, because advanced manufacturing and engineering is really the driver of innovation. And when you have advanced manufacturing and engineering offshore, it's more difficult to be innovative onshore. Okay, so how do you make the supply chain more nimble? Yeah, I wish there was an easy answer to this, Andrea, but there's not. This is a long-term challenge that we need to focus on related to investment, education and investment. 
where we build the engineering capability onshore. You know, we look at supply chains as smaller, right? And so instead of having to have these massive factories that build things at large scale at low labor costs, we do more advanced manufacturing and things like 3D printing, um, artificial intelligence, so we can compete on a labor scale. Um, but again, we have to invest in those facilities and they become more community-based. So instead of having like one province in China that produces everything, we have these smaller um, manufacturing hubs in each city. So we shorten the supply chain and improve the capability and innovation. Okay. So this is a cost issue, though. The reason we rely on China and other countries to make products is because they're cheaper. How do you get Americans on board to change the system if the result makes things more expensive? Great question. And I knew this was going to come up. It's a different definition of efficiency. So if you think of efficiency as it's defined in today's supply chain, it's all based on a reduction of waste, reduction of costs, as lean as possible, right? So you have as less inventory as possible. However, there's impacts when it comes to what we're seeing today. There's impact on labor. So there's less of a multiplier effect of how the supply chain helps a community, right? However, if we change that model and make it smaller scale, make it more community-based, the cost at least initially may be higher at the start, but um, will be offset with automation, but will also have more of a multiplier effect on that community. So the difference between value and efficiency, um, the cost value is lower in, in the global model, but the value in the efficiency is, is greater in the local model. And I think this problem isn't just in America, it's all over the world. And what's interesting is if you look at the Chinese economy, the growth of the Chinese economy as well as slowing down. So it's not just us. It's the entire world that this paradigm shift could help. Jack, thanks so much for talking with us. Andrew, thanks for having me. A view of the world as it could be from Jack Buffington, assistant professor of supply chain management at DU. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Now, let's set our sights about 50 miles south of me, south of Colorado Springs, on Pueblo. My colleague Avery Lill is on her way to the Home of Heroes to spend Super Tuesday night with voters. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. Why did you choose Pueblo? Pueblo is a purple county, a lot in the same way that Colorado is a purple state. About 160,000 people live there. It voted for Democratic Governor Jared Polis, but it backed President Trump in 2016, even though Trump lost in Colorado overall. Um, also, it was the first county to set a 100% renewable energy goal, and that's despite the fact that it has long been a steel town, so it's had to diversify its economy, its jobs have declined. It's also important to note that more than half of the people who live there are Hispanic. So for a lot of reasons, Pueblo is an important and diverse city and county to watch in this election. Who will you be talking to once you get there? Our first stop is County Kitchen Restaurant to meet with the conservative with a conservative voter. And obviously, that's more up in the air today for Democrats in terms of choosing a primary candidate. But we want to know what's on his mind as the field narrows for President Trump's opponents in the general election. And then you're off to see some Democrats. Yep. First, we'll head to a polling place in downtown Pueblo to see what folks there have to say after they cast their votes. And after Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out last minute, we're seeing advantages for Democrats who didn't vote early this year. Then, as the results come in, we'll be at the Pueblo County Democrats' watch party. All right. Safe travels, Avery. Thanks for the check-in. 
Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Avery Lill, you can follow at Colorado Matters as we tweet from Pueblo on this Super Tuesday. Teen mental health takes center stage in a new play touring Colorado schools. It's put on not by a theater company, but by a health care firm to get teens talking about anxiety, depression, and suicide. As part of our Teens Under Stress project, CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf attended a recent performance at 5280 High School in Denver. So there's this character in the play named Andre. He's a good student, plays sports. His life seems pretty great, but that's not how Andre sees it. No me. No one knows anyone. That's not true. Actually, it is. No one knows what's going on with anyone else. The pressure to succeed in academics and athletics, go to a good university, get a scholarship, it's suffocating him. Sophomore Daisy Ortiz Ramirez can relate. I get good grades and stuff like that. There's been some cases where I do feel like overwhelmed and like pressured, and especially like being the oldest in my family. I gotta be an example for my younger siblings to do good and like have a good career. Ortiz Ramirez and her classmates just watched Ghosted. Kaiser Permanente premiered the show in Colorado last fall in response to an alarming increase in the teen suicide rate. Nationally, it's up 25% over three years and up nearly 60% in Colorado. That's according to a report from the United Health Foundation. The play follows four teens who run into each other outside the school counselor's office. One is dealing with anxiety and experiences panic attacks. Another has a tough home life, which causes him to lash out. Screw you! Screw this whole damn school! And another worries about her boyfriend, who seems to be thinking about suicide. He says he feels like he's not going to make it to college. And, like, he says all this weird stuff, like... Ortiz Ramirez says the scenarios felt spot on. Oh my God, it felt like 110% relevant. Those situations, in my opinion, will never go out of date because new generations go through it. After the show, the cast and crew talk with students. A Kaiser Permanente staff member reads off statements about mental health. He has students to stand if they agree and stay seated if they disagree. One of those statements is, Mental health is easy to talk about. Mental health is easy to talk about. Most remain in their seats. Last statement, I know of someone who has gone through an issue similar to what we saw in the show. Stand if you agree. Nearly everyone stands. That caught sophomore Liam Olson off guard. It was shocking that how many people we know could have that and not even tell other people around them, not even tell their closest friends, possibly. 5280 High School Dean of Students Jenna Garrow says staff and teachers do their best to address students' mental health needs, and they are mostly on their own to do it. So we have a school psychologist. She's strapped. She serves several high schools here in Denver. We see her only on Monday. (laughs) We do not have access to a school social worker this year. The school puts aside time multiple times a week for students to talk about their emotions and feelings with their peers and teachers. But it never feels like enough, she says. Most days I leave thinking, I wish I had more time to better understand what this particular student is navigating. I wonder how many of the students want to share something and just don't know how or when. 
Guerra hopes the play's depictions of teens talking about their issues will inspire students to do the same. It's much easier to talk about feeling sick or like physical health stuff. And so I hope our students can recognize that just because it's difficult doesn't mean we can't. Brian Harper with Kaiser Permanente Colorado believes the art will help teens get there. I always like to think of it as arts moves messages from the head to the heart. When they can actually feel and empathize with the characters, when they can see themselves in a character, when they can see their friends in a character, it just transforms the message. Harper directs The Ghosted Project in Colorado. The play is Kaiser Permanente's latest offering from its 35-year-old program that uses art to address health issues. Ghosted debuted in the company's Washington region and will eventually go nationwide. Harper says the play ends as the characters realize they can help each other. And just able to check in with each other. So the kind of ghosted comes from the idea that they say, let's text if we need a moment, if we need each other, and I won't ghost you. You promise not to ghost me? And that's the hope, to show teens that they aren't alone and that if one of their peers is hurting, their only job is to be a good friend. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters from Colorado Springs today. Thanks for spending time with us. Special coverage of Super Tuesday begins at 6 p.m. on CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.